Hello, everybody. Welcome. As we continue on uh, in a study we're doing right now throughout the whole New Testament, um, which we've been working on, and my notes say this is our 209th study on the New Testament. So uh, uh, we've been at it well over four years now, and um, we're, we're pushing through. There's about a little under 50 left. We hope to we'll finish up at the end of this year with the New Testament, and then we'll start with the Old Testament. That'll take us 15 years. And then we'll start all over again in the New Testament. So we have Wednesdays mapped out for quite some time. And uh, that'll be good. Uh, studying like this in context, you hear me say it all the time, but we'll keep it in context. It's, it's important because the, uh, you, you, as you read through the scripture, if you just sort of hit and miss verses, um, sometimes it begins to make you think it's saying something that it might not be saying. And so it's always very important when you find a verse you like to read it in context. And by that I mean you read what's before it and you read what's after it. And then if you can take it deeper than that, you, 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 you should have some understanding of when it was written, who it was written to, and, and perhaps why it was written, especially in the New Testament. Remember in the New Testament, we went through the Gospels and we, we found out all about Jesus and his ministry. And then we did the book of Acts and we, we saw the ministry of the early church and, and how it all sort of began to develop right in the beginning. And towards the end of the book of Acts, we started seeing the missionary journeys that Paul took and, and how the church spread um, because of these journeys that Paul was on and how he planted churches and, and how the Spirit of God worked through him. And then we saw and we went through all of his letters, all the letters that Paul wrote, because the, as the church was being formed, they, they, didn't, they weren't exactly sure how some things were supposed to go. And so um, they would send questions to Paul, whether by letter or by messenger, and he would write these letters back to address situations because he couldn't always get back there. Sometimes he would send people, but he would write down instructions, okay, this is what you need to do in that instance and for that situation. Uh, and so the letters were written to specific um, instances and questions in a specific period of time. Saying that, they were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit using the, the guys who wrote, uh, using their personalities and, their, and the way that they use grammar and everything else, but still, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired them. And, and so what was written still impacts us today, because sin is still sin, and, and the issues are still primarily the same, because people haven't changed all that much, we just have found different ways to sin, I guess. And... Uh, and so the, 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 the same sort of things apply, but we want to make sure that we're, we're looking at how they apply, what they were written to, and, and that helps us have a better and deeper understanding of the scripture. And so that's why we've undertaken this study and have committed, you know, 20 years to it. So, uh, which is a pretty long commitment. And, you know, so anyway, um, we're, we're four years plus in. We're in the book of Hebrews now. Now, we've, we've, did all of, we've finished all of Paul's letters. And now we have this, this letter to the Hebrews, and then we have a few more. We have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We've got James. Um, we've got 1st and 2nd Peter, and then the book of Revelation that we've got to go through. Um, the, the Hebrews was written um, to a specific group. It was written to a group of Christians who, who were, um, had been Jewish and who had accepted Jesus as Messiah, as a lot of the early church was all about in, in the beginning. That's who was there. But because of the persecution... And we know this letter was written before 70 AD because we, we know it was written before the temple was destroyed. We talked about that last week. So there, in the early part of the church, in the 50s and 60s uh, AD, there, were, there was a lot of persecution, and they were getting weary of the persecution, 
And, and some of them were thinking about abandoning the faith that they'd come into uh, in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is making this amazing uh, detailed argument of why that would be foolish, because there's nothing for them really to go back to. They found the, uh, the ultimate uh, when they found Christ. And so there was no real going back for anyone. And he's, he's made a lot of comparisons to their ancestors and how they were so close to the promised land, but then turned away because of a lack of trust and faith at the last minute and never got to enter it. And he's saying, you know, don't repeat the same sort of mistakes in the process. And we're not sure who the writer of Hebrews is um, because it doesn't say. Um, they, uh, for years and years they thought it was Paul, but as people studied it further, they, they don't believe it was Paul. Um, um, some of the stuff is similar, but the writing style is much different. So they believe it was a companion of Paul's who actually wrote it. We're not sure who. Um, so everything is conjecture on who actually wrote the book, but we do know that it was divinely inspired, it, it was included in canon, and so we, um, we understand that it's supposed to be there, and we will find out who the writer is when we get to heaven. And uh, if it's one of your questions that you can ask, I just don't, you know, I think that's one of those, after you've been there 10,000 year questions. I think at first you're just so cool, it's just so cool to be there that those questions don't really bother you anymore, and then maybe you meet the writer somewhere, and you have coffee, and... Uh, Heavenly coffee's got to be really good. You know what I mean? If they have heavenly coffee. But I'm, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, if you think, if you need coffee, then it's good, right? So uh, in heaven, it's all, it all works. So anyway, um, or maybe it'd be over a fish sandwich. We know that's part of the deal, but uh, biblically anyway. So, uh, but the, the book is just amazingly laid out uh, in, in how it's building now on things that the, uh, uh, the Hebrew uh, Christians would have known, and so the, the Hebrews uh, letter is filled with Old Testament scripture, more than all the other letters, just because they would have been able to reference to it because they would have known it from their, from their um, upbringing. And so when we get to chapter 9 now, and what we've been talking about in these last couple of chapters is how um, there's a new system in place in Christ that's replaced the old system. Um, and there's a new covenant that's replaced the old covenant. In Christ, there's a new order, if you would, a new way of doing things. And so the old has been phased out. And that's what we've been looking at in the letters. We've talked about Jesus' priesthood as in the order of Melchizedek and what that means and how it's, it's replaced the Levitical priesthood. Um, that there's a, a new covenant that replaces the old covenant. The old covenant, you know, there was a, the, the law written on stone tablets. And the new covenant, now it's written on our hearts. And, and we have the Holy Spirit to help us walk this thing out. And so we, we have a whole new sort of system going on. And now he had made a reference in, in Hebrews chapter 8 to the, um, the sanctuary. And um, he, he goes back into Hebrews 9 and he starts talking about that. The earthly sanctuary, the one in, in the temple that had been designed by God very carefully um, inscripted as to exactly what was supposed to take place. And so it was more or less an earthly replica with lots of symbolism about uh, uh, something in heaven. Okay, And, and the inner sanctuary um, of the earthly sanctuary represented the very presence of of God. It was known as the most holy place uh, in the sanctuary. And it was entered only by the high priest at the time. And even then, he was only able to enter once a year. And he always took with him the blood of a sacrifice he had offered for himself and for the sins that people had committed. And there was a veil which separated them. And, and this veil covered the inner sanctuary at all times. 
and it was pulled aside only briefly for this, uh, this sacrifice to take place once a year. And it was sort of a, a most of the stuff in the, in the early temple, it's a visual reminder um, that God had used, a visual aid, if you would, that, that the door to God had not yet been thrown open. And so the, 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 curtain, the, the veil would just be popped open for a second while this sacrifice took place, and that was it. Um, and, and see, the, the idea that we're going to read about in Hebrews 9 was that these repeated sacrifices that were going on, um, they never succeeded in removing this veil so that we could have complete access to God. Uh, in Hebrews, you'll see it says that it wasn't able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. And so what was taking place in the old system was that sins were merely covered. And, and that's the meaning of the word atonement. Um, the sin was covered but not removed. And since the sin wasn't removed, the guilt remained. And, and um, in effect... This constant um, thing that happened was a reminder of their sin. Um, and it had to be dealt with that way, but, but it was a constant sort of reminder. It wasn't bringing them um, the, the, uh, the hope that, that they needed, the sort of the cure. Let me, let me put it this way. I read this article about a woman who um, had lost her kidneys to disease. And um, for eight months, she lived on a dialysis machine. And so the, 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 the blood in her system was pumped through this machine, and, and so the blood was kept uh, clean then of, of impurities, and, and uh, was, was kept, you know, where it would support her life. And so the machine took the place of the kidneys temporarily. And then um, it, it went on in this article, and it said she, you know, three times she thought she was going to get a transplant. It hadn't happened. She, she finally um, was able to get a transplant, and that was her only real hope of um, life. But she was sustained by um, the machine until the real kidney became available, uh, the transplant made happen. Um, so it's sort of like that with the Old Testament saints. Um, the sacrifices were, were like that dialysis machine. It kept them going. But the real hope for life was that someday a cure could be found. And, and someday transplanted life might deal with the sickness from within. And until then, the repeated sacrifices sort of were a reminder to Israel of how sick they were with sin and what was going on. But then Jesus comes and he, he makes the cure happen. He came to deal with the poison of sin from within, not to cover it, but to cleanse it, to cleanse us from it. And so Jesus, the true sacrifice, into which all of the animal sacrifice that happened before were pointing to a, a true sacrifice that was coming, in one unique act, he perfected forever, the Bible says, those of us set apart to God by his action at the cross and how he shed his blood for us. So in that one amazing action, all of this stuff that had gone on for thousands of years was no longer necessary because it, it was only a dialysis machine, if you would. It wasn't a cure. But Jesus came with a cure and brought transplanted life and gave us hope again. That's what takes place in the whole process. So let's read Hebrews 9, 28 verses, uh, and uh, then we'll go from there. I'm reading out of the uh, New International Version. That's what's on the handouts. If you've got one on the way in, it's also what's in the Bibles in the rows if you want one. If you have your own Bible, you can follow along. But uh, let me read this to you. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In the first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, 
and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss those things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered into the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not into put, put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in his ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter into heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed only to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And blessed be the word of the Lord. All right, so there's a lot going on in Hebrews 9, and obviously we can't get to all of it in the short time we have together, but I want to make some, some points about what happened. So again, in those first 10 verses of Hebrews 9, the high priest um, could only enter the most holy place, which is the innermost room of the sanctuary, once, one day each year to atone for the nation's sin. Remember, he, he, would, he could cover them, but he couldn't cure them, okay? And the most holy place um, 
we know just by description, it had to be a, and it represented the, the actual presence of God. That's why you hear me talk about how cool it is now that in Christ we have access to the most holy place 24-7. It's like, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. Hebrews 10 will tell us about that next week, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. But in the one, the earthly one, um, it had the Ark of the Covenant, um, which you know about if you're an Indiana Jones fan, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant. They were always looking for that. It was a gold-covered chest that contained, according to the writer of Hebrews, the stone tablets, the actual tablets the Ten Commandments were written on, Aaron's staff, the one that he used during um, the Exodus, uh, you know, when they got set free from Pharaoh, and at some point this thing had budded, and that was a big sign, and so they kept it. But the same, you know, the staff that he would throw down, and it, it turned into a snake and ate the other guy's snakes, and that's the staff. Pretty cool when you think about it. And a jar of manna. How cool is that? That's what was in the Ark of the Covenant. Still is, I would imagine. Wherever it is. It's got to be somewhere. So anyway. Um, so Hebrews 9.4 tells us that. The golden altar of incense, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, it contained the jar of manna, Aaron's staff, the stone tablets of the covenant. Now, just where that stuff came from, um, I've got the verses. Uh, uh, Exodus 25 10 and following, if you want to write that down, talks about how that original ark was made and, and how it was covered um, and overlaid with pure gold and a gold molding was made around it and it was all laid out by God how he wanted it um, built. And then, um, and then he, he tells them to take these two stone tablets that he wrote the commandments on and to put them in the ark. Deuteronomy 10 talks about that too, the second set that needs to go in there in case they got broken at some point and needed to be fixed, put in the tablets. So that's in the ark, and that's in Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 5. So if you want to look at that, you can look at that too, but, but that's how we know they were put there, they were commanded by God to be put there, and they were there, as the writer of Hebrew tells us, at that point in history, they were there. In Exodus 16, um, 31 through 36, it talks about when they were told and commanded to collect this manna. Um, and uh, manna, can you imagine manna? The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Does that sound good? Can you imagine God's bread? How, I mean, we see him in Jesus and all that, but can you imagine it tasted like wafers made with honey? That's some, that's some cool stuff. And they told him, take an, take an omer of this and, and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. And so they, took an, they were allowed to keep it and put it in there and it, um, it stayed uh, in, in its form um, because he's God and he can do that. Um, so, and if you remember when they were collecting manna, they were only allowed to take so much. All they needed for the day, if they hoarded it, it went bad on them and got filled with maggots. But uh, they just kept what they needed. It never went bad. And then on the day before the Sabbath, you know, they would collect for two days. And, uh, and they would have enough to go through the, that day and the Sabbath day. And that was always fine. But if they tried to get greedy, it went bad. So you get all the God's bread that you need, and that's good enough. So anyway, that's another story. And then... Um, in Numbers 17, if you want to go and look at that, verse 8 and following uh, through 11, it talks about Aaron's staff and, and how it had budded and blossomed and, uh, uh, and, and produced almonds. And they, they brought that and put that as well in the ark because that's where it was needed to be kept. Okay, so you can look at those. The top of the chest that was described and is known as the atonement cover. And it served as the altar on which the blood would be sacrificed by the high priest on the day of atonement. That's where that offering took place was on the actual um, lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called um, the Atonement Cover. The sacrifice was made there. And this thing in this most holy place, it had these two huge cherubim statues. Cherubim were guardian angels. 
Um, sometimes you think of the word cherub and you think of those little chubby-cheeked angels. That's not. The cherubim were put, uh, and they were the ones who, after we got kicked out of the garden, were put to set watch over it. You don't want to mess with the cherubim. Let me just give you a... <laughs> don't go, oh, you're so cute. <laughs> that would be a no. And so the, 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 the statues of them were there. It was all just this huge sort of uh, you know, concept and picture of what was taking place. And think about this. The, the most holy place was the most sacred spot on the earth for the Jewish people. The most sacred place on earth was right there. The priest could enter it only once a year. So common people had no access to it. It was forbidden. All the other priests had no access to it. It was forbidden. Um, the only access to God, and this was the picture of the time, was through the high priest, who once a year would then make sacrifices for him and for everybody else. All a picture of, of the ministry that was coming in Jesus. Then in verses 11 through 15, the writer contrasts the old system with the new. So Jesus um, is the high priest who entered not the earthly sanctuary, but, but heaven. And he didn't offer the blood of animals, but he offered his own blood. He obtained eternal redemption for us instead of a temporary covering. See, and with Jesus as our high priest, verse 14 says this, that he has cleansed our consciences from act that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Everything changed. So not only is our sin atoned for so that we can keep going, it's actually, it's actually paid for. It's, it's wiped clean. It's no longer, it's gone. It's, it's dealt with. That's, an, that's the concept you have to get. See, it's different than the old way of doing things. In the new way, it's not just, it's not just covered, it's washed, it's, it's cleansed. You're set free in, in what Jesus did. He, he set us free totally from sin and guilt. See, they couldn't get rid of the guilt before because the sin was covered, not dealt with. Now it's dealt with, and so we, we don't have to be, be stuck in guilt and shame. See, that's what the enemy wants to keep you stuck in. Not, not God. God wants you free so that you can serve him. Free. It's in that freedom that we, we begin to live lives that really make a difference for him. Because we, we choose, we say, you know, God, I'm a broken mess. I still, still not, not got it all together. And I, I know you don't want me to, to pretend, but what I want to do, my heart's desire, God, is to live for you and to live this thing the best I can. And when I mess up, Lord, I'm going to run back to you. And, and Lord, I, I'm going to confess my sin to you. And, and he, he's going to forgive us because of what he's done. And, and, and he says, now go, I love you so much. Now go and do the next right thing. We've talked about this process. We've been set free. That's what makes life different. It's not just covered. It's washed, dealt with. Hebrews 9, 16 through 28. I just wanted to, because there's a lot of talk of blood in these chapters, which upsets a lot of people. Um, and, and they, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all, what's all the deal with the blood? Why is forgiveness tied into the shedding of the blood? And the thing is that blood um, has always been and is and was a symbol of life because blood keeps us alive. And so Jesus shed his blood and gave his life to forgive our, to forgive our sins that we would not experience spiritual death. So that's what takes place now. We're still going to experience physical death unless he comes and meets us you know if he comes back before that happens then then I, we get to pass that one too which would be pretty cool but nonetheless in christ you are spirit you come spiritually alive and that stays with you spiritual death is eternal separation from god and so in christ now we have we have spiritual life and he gave his life so that we might live and by this one single sufficient sacrifice Jesus has done what all of the old repeated sacrifice could never accomplish. Sacrifice once, he took away the sins of the people, the sins of his people. And his sacrifice was enough to do away with sin, past, 
present, and future. He's forgiven our, our sins past when he died on the cross. He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us deal with our present sin. And he also makes intercession for us now in the presence of the Father. And then he's coming back to raise us to eternal life with him forever. And there'll be no more sin. Gone. Done. When he comes back to get us, sin is gone. Done. And, and that's what's taking place in Hebrews 9. And so that's why Hebrews is such an amazing chapter. Next, tomorrow, next week when we get back together, Hebrews 10, it, it talks about our access and how cool it is. You know, Therefore, brothers, since we have access to the most holy place, just how, how amazing is that? that? That we have access to the most holy place. So now when we hear those verses, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, all of a sudden it'll go, oh, it's that place that they're talking about. Because in context now, you see how that all came about and what it's replacing in Hebrews 9 and 8 and 7. And so, so we'll be looking for that um, next week. But, uh, but that's enough of, of uh, our study tonight. Um, if you're watching on television um, or on video, thank you. We appreciate your time. We know how valuable that is. Thank you for spending this time with us. And uh, we encourage you to come and visit us when you get a chance on Big Pine. And if you need prayer, go to our website at keysvineyard.com. Find the prayer page, hit the button. We will pray for you. But that's going to be it for tonight. Please wave in that room if you've turned off the button. That room is completely empty. Um, will someone run up there for me and... T- are, you, are you there turning off the button? No, somebody needs to go and tell them. I, they're probably paying ping pong. <laughs> there he comes. Turn it off. Thank you. I am done and have been done for a minute or two, so... Remember to tell Doug he's got to edit that out before it goes to television because that would be bad. <laughs>